Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Ontario government, uh, the Doug Ford government, uh, announced yesterday they are planning on building a great big sign at the Canada-U.S. border that says, Our province is open for business. Do we really need to spend money building a sign like this? I mean, I understand the politics in this. I get that. But it just seems rather ludicrous to me. Marvin Ryder is here, of course, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. And uh, great to have you. Thanks for coming in today. Glad to be here, Bill. What, what, What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, during the provincial election campaign, uh, Doug Ford kept saying, I want to make Ontario open for business. And frankly, I didn't understand the comment. Now, I'm probably going to anger a lot of your listeners when I say this. Ontario has been open for business and our economy is doing brilliantly. It was doing brilliantly before Doug Ford and it's continuing under Doug Ford. Just to give you a couple of examples, the uh, unemployment rate in Ontario is the lowest it's been in over 20 years. Do you remember a year ago at this time when people were talking about increasing the minimum wage to $14? Oh my gosh, unemployment is going to be a sea of unemployment. Oh, and small businesses are going to slow, oh, close the doors. And, and, it's oh, going to be awful. Gonna, haven't seen any of that. In fact, just the opposite. We've had a very robust economy. In terms of growth, Ontario is the fastest growing economy. Now, I'm not talking again under Doug Ford. This is the second quarter of this year, which is be, sort of before the election. Yeah, yeah. Ontario was the fastest growing economy of all the provinces in Canada. Now, yes, occasionally Alberta uh, usurps us when oil is doing really well, but we're doing fine. So when Doug Ford says we're open for business, I think, I think what he means is that he is working to eliminate some taxes that that bothered some businesses. So one of those, of course, is cap and trade, the, the sort of the energy tax, carbon tax that he felt made us uncompetitive compared to the United States, where some states haven't enacted this. He's also pledging to bring down the marginal tax rate for businesses, both small and large. Ontario has one of, it's not the lowest, but one of the lowest marginal tax rates for business in North America. There's only a handful of jurisdictions that are lower, and they're only marginally lower. Um, and, and I would say to Doug Ford, why don't you wait and see what Mr. Morneau is going to do in the spring budget? He's also aware that there's some pressure on, on the business sector, given Donald Trump's reduction in taxes. So he may do something federally. But we're open for business. We've been open for business. I don't think a sign is going to change that. If you want to have a sign that says, now with no carbon taxes, or now with uh, uh, no more increases in minimum wage for a year or two, fine, put that sign up. But to say we're open for business, we've always been open for business. Well, and, and the numbers bear that out. And, and by the way, I mentioned this yesterday when we were talking about an economic uh, subject as well. I, I think politicians get way too much credit when the economy goes well and I, too much of the blame when it goes in, into the tank. Uh, and, and we're not in any way suggesting that, well, the economy is robust in Ontario because of Kathleen Wynne. It, may have been, it might have been in spite of Kathleen Wynne because of some of the things that she enacted. But nonetheless, the numbers are the numbers. And, and, and I understand during election campaigns, you're always going to get bombast and rhetoric. And, and, you know, that appeals, I guess, to the base to say, yeah, we hate Kathleen Wynne and, yeah, the economy is terrible. Well, no, it's not. In fact, you know, the recession, I hate to say again this, this out loud, our recession in, in Canada and Ontario, 2007-8, that was 10 years ago. Now, it is absolutely true we went through one of the longest periods of recovery. But we've recovered. We're out of this. There is no recession anymore. We are not suffering. In case people haven't realized, this is what good times look like now. They aren't quite the boom that we had, say, in the 60s and 70s. They're a little quieter boom, but these are the good times now. As you point out, uh, uh, you can't put a wall around the province or a wall around the country and keep your economy separate from 
everything else that is happening in the world. So, yes, we've had some challenges when Europe has got a cold. We've sneezed a bit. When the United States gets a cold, we sneeze a bit. Um, even in the case of the United States, you know, everyone seems to, um, many Americans seem to love what Donald Trump is doing with tariffs. But there are signs now as we enter the third quarter of 2018 that his putting tariffs on on Canadian products, on Chinese products, on products from around the world are having a detrimental impact on the American economy. He had a great second quarter. It, you know, on its own, it was 4% growth if you could annualize it over the course of a year. That's, that's spectacular. American economy hasn't grown like that for a long time. But I don't think the third quarter is going to be like that. And so uh, I'm curious to see what he does. Conceivably, Donald Trump as he sort of, I hate to use this term again, sort of willy-nilly throws tariffs here, there, and every place else, could not only cause recessions in other parts of the world, like Canada, but could send his own economy back into a recession, and that's not good for anybody. The, the other element of this, and, and I know that Jim Wilson, the uh, minister in charge of economic development, uh, when he made the announcement yesterday, also said, uh, you know, this, the, the previous government did a terrible job of cutting red tape, and that's always a concern for businesses, and we understand that. But last year, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business actually awarded Ontario honorable mention, and they, they, they call it their Golden Scissors Award, for governments that actually make it easier to do business in that jurisdiction. So they, they seem to be on the right track. Instead of saying, I'm going to put a sign up, that's, that's like the guy saying, I'm going to build a wall. Uh, that sign is not going to attract anybody. No, and, and in but, fact... But let, in other words, tell us what your plan is to keep this thing rolling. Right, uh, key, keep but, the momentum. But, but your point is, I think, is very, very cogent to this, Marvin, is a lot of the things that are going to have an impact on the Ontario economy are without... Uh, without the, any ability of the Ontario economy to control this. It's, exactly. it's, it's, the tra it's the tariffs. It's the national. The carbon tax debate is going to happen next year during the federal election campaign. We know that. And, and whatever is going to happen there is going to have an impact on the Ontario economy. A sign isn't going to do anybody any good. <laughs> no, I mean, it is a bit of self-promotion, I suppose, and it may be signaling that there's a new new regime in Ontario, something like that. But no, I... I under, it, under new management? Under new management, yeah. So I think to go back to your point, there, there has been some momentum. Now, I know, again, people don't want to give Kathleen Wynne much credit for anything. But yes, she was doing some interesting things in this province. And now the question for the new government is how how do you build on those good things? I get it. There are some bad things. Fine. Don't build on those. But how do you build on the good things she was doing? Now, one of those challenges around red tape that everyone talks about is that not all red tape is provincial. There is some red tape which is federal, and there's also some red tape which is municipal. So a good government, I think, would be working at all three levels, with all three levels of government, to say, what can we do to make the community more receptive to business? I'll also tell you when it comes to taxes, and here I am teaching at a business school, I should be very pro-business, but I'm a little worried with the current mantra, which is that we should keep cutting business taxes, cutting business taxes, cutting business taxes, then how do we fund our government? And if we're going to get less and less money from the business sector, there's only one place to get the money from, and it's from you and I. And mm -hmm. I, think it's, I think it's a partnership. I think every business understands that they do. Contributing taxes is a worthwhile part of being a community to fund the health care programs in the community, to fund the social programs. That's part of their role. So I get it that we want to stay competitive with the United States, but if for some reason, if for some reason Donald Trump said, I'm going to cut all business taxes, business pays no tax whatsoever, I don't think like lemmings we should be following suit. Well, listen, let's connect the dots here for just a second. Story in the news today uh, about parents being very concerned about how hot it is in schools. Mm -hmm. Why don't they have air conditioning? 
Well, let me go back about six weeks to when the, uh, the Ford government announced they were going to kill the cap-and-trade program. And with that announcement, they also said all that funding that was supposed to go to schools for repairs, you're not getting it. Not a cent. Not a cent. Well, th- that's cause and effect. So in other words, hey, that's great. He's saving us money. We're not going to have to pay that. But now the schools are suffering. Now the kids are hot in school. I mean, it is a cause and effect. If you if governments take in less money, they're going to do less. <laughs> that's correct. That's well, all there is to it. Another example, that somebody stopped me the other day and said, uh, I thought gasoline prices were supposed to go down 10 cents a liter. And I remind them that, well, 4.2%, 4.2 cents was going to come from killing cap and trade. So, well, I thought, I thought he killed cap and trade. Well, sort of. But those people who bought into cap-and-trade in the first couple of quarters of this year are saying, I want my money back. So the money the government took in, the billions of dollars that the government took in under cap-and-trade, they may have to give it all back. He won't have it to spend on other things. And, and again, I, I, I have to tell you, Bill, I'm a little ambivalent on cap-and-trade. I think we do have, owe it to ourselves to do something around carbon. I also know that if I tax something, people will change their, their use of it, or in this case, their creation of it. Um, it makes you think twice then before you, you do certain things. And the whole idea of cap-and-trade was this wasn't going to be money that just went into the government's general coffers. They were going to turn around and spend it on other energy-saving initiatives. So take a school as a great example. We could do an energy retrofit, put more insulation in the walls, get a modern heating, ventilating, air conditioning system that uses less energy. This was going to be part of it. For people, you would be able to tap into programs to improve your home and your energy efficiency. That money wasn't going to stay in the government's hands. It was going to go back out into the public. Even Justin Trudeau's federal um, cap-and-trade program or carbon tax program is designed to be the same thing. Revenue neutral in the sense that the revenue that comes in on one hand is going to go out in terms of programs on the other side. These were not bad things. Or rebates. British Columbia offers rebates. Right. But all these things would be good good things. Uh, I understand we pay a little more marginally, but honestly, Bill, when you when you pay at the tank, when you pay at the pump, and you pull out a credit card, do you notice the buck or two? Likewise, if I cut it, if he cuts 4.2 cents a liter, my typical fill-up is around 25 liters, so I save a dollar. I don't think I'm going to notice that dollar. Not really. Uh, yeah, and what I want to see here is is this government, and they're the government of the day here in Ontario. So let's work with these guys. Yep. I mean, that's what we're going to do. Know, that's what we should do with every government instead of simply sitting and criticizing. But but show us cause and effect. Bring money in. How are you going to spend that money? Instead of simply saying, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to govern by edict here well, on a philosophical level. Uh, you know, I hate taxes, so I'm going to kill that program because that's really just a tax. Well, yeah, but that's a generation for the government. That's cash generation for the government. And if you do that, well, let's have that discussion about what's going to be impacted. We're not there yet. Right. Well, to just go back to the gasoline tax, so 4.2 cents were going to come from killing cap and trade. Where's the other 5.8 cents to get you 10 cents a liter? It was going to be cutting the government taxes on gasoline. Now, again, I I don't have a problem with that. I'd like to spend less at the pump. It doesn't seem like very much. 5.8 cents per liter when a a liter of gasoline is $1.25 or $1.30. But that was billions, billions of dollars of revenue for this government that he's going to wipe off with a stroke of a pen. How do you replace that? Remember, he criticized the liberals as well for running deficits. And I think this is one of the reasons why the liberals lost the provincial election. They were running fairly large deficits. Oh, you're mortgaging our children's future for these programs. Great, Doug. So you're not, you don't want to run deficits, but you're also going to cut some revenue generation. How do you make it up? And, and that's the math that I haven't seen. I am looking forward 
I am looking forward to the first budget under this conservative government uh, just to see how they make the math happen. Let's talk, uh, just uh, while you're in here, a couple of minutes about uh, some of those other extraneous factors uh, (laughs) with this economy nationally. Uh, And it looks as if uh, we may be a lot closer to a NAFTA deal than, than Donald Trump is letting on. Wow. Uh, I, I know, I know the, the, the dispute resolution and uh, it seems to still be the stumbling block. But, but even the Canadian government and Christy Freeland said, look, they're going to be flexible about supply management, too, and by just simply increasing the amount of, of American product that can come in here. That should be a win-win. Yeah, so I think we're down to three issues, Bill. I think one around supply management is that we are not going to dismantle supply management. That makes our farmers, gives our farmers quotas, make sure they don't overproduce into the marketplace. In fact, frankly, I think the United States would be well off to adopt supply management rather than having each farmer try to produce the maximum and then wind up dumping milk on their fields. So instead, what it's going to be is how much American product can come in duty-free. There is a certain amount now under the current agreement. And, and so let's say it was 100,000 units, whatever those units are. America obviously wants it unlimited. We're going to propose something else. And I think you do horse trade and you find the number. Uh, also, our cultural sector, we, we uh, in the radio, the TV business, there are quotas on Canadian content because we don't want to become America North. And I, I think, again, we'll get through that. Dispute resolution going back 25 years to the first NAFTA was the biggest biggest um, problem in the in the negotiation. 25 years ago, they were still talking about it, still setting the formal language three hours before Brian Mulroney and, and uh, Ronald Reagan stood together and signed the document. From the United States standpoint, what's the philosoph- philosophy here is that they don't like the idea that a foreign judge or power could pass a ruling that affects them. So their philosophy is if under NAFTA we have a complaint against an American company, it should be heard and settled by American judges. Period. Full stop. What is currently in place in NAFTA is instead a three-person tribunal. One person from Canada, one person from Mexico, one person from the United States. These three judges hear it and they issue a ruling. It doesn't have to be unanimous. Two, one wins. And yes, conceivably, it's possible that the Canadian-Mexican judge might agree and the American judge might disagree. But so what? It's going to happen anyway. Uh, And and so I, I like that. I think that's fair. Uh, I, honest to God, think that Lighthizer and Ross, who are actually the point people on this, doing the face-to-face negotiations, I think they understand some of this. But they have a boss who, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, his understanding and his views can change. And that's the the climate we're in. So, conceivably, Bill, I could walk out of this room when we're done talking, and uh, there could be an announcement. We have NAFTA. We could have it by tomorrow at 5. It could take another week or two, but we are getting closer and closer because we've been able to make many of the other problems go away. But there's a process issue here, too. But And, and I know that's their problem, not Canada's, but it is going to have an impact on us mm-hmm. uh, because trade is supposed to be under the purview of, of Congress, not mm-hmm. the president. Mm-hmm. And it was Congress that gave the president permission mm-hmm. to open negotiations. Uh, but it still has to come back to them, and Trump seems to want to circumvent that. Well, he does. And so, you know, his belief is that once he signs it, it's de facto law. And, and maybe it is today, given that the Republicans control the House and the Senate. But uh, the current timeline, let's suppose uh, everything gets inked and we have a, a paper deal by October 1st, uh, this current administration in the House and the Senate will not be the one to ratify it. It'll be the next one coming in after these midterm elections. The only advantage to trying to get the deal by October 1st is we can deal with the existing Mexican president. He would have the capability of signing this. 
Now, uh, the current president, Peña Nieto, has said he'd be happy to sign it. The incoming president, Lopez Obrador, has said he'd be willing to sign it. But the concern is any new administration, things may change. And I only have to look at the American change from Obama sure. to Trump to say, boy, a new administration can change dramatically. So it would nail one of them. For Canada, it doesn't really matter because our process will still happen under Justin Trudeau, whether we sign it today, tomorrow, October 1st. Uh, we'll have this all ratified by the time of the fall election in 2019. So it won't affect us, but it does affect the United States. But again, in Trump's mind, once he signs it, it's going to be law. Oddly enough, Bill, even if there's a change, if the Democrats take control of the House, if the Democrats take control of the Senate, I think a fairly negotiated NAFTA, which is, again, what we're all working for, will be approved without a problem. A Donald Trump ram it down his throat NAFTA could be in trouble. So, again, we'll have to see how this all plays out. I'm missing one element here that is very concerning. I have heard no discussion at all about whether or not signing a deal or striking some sort of a deal is going to automatically lift those tariffs on steel and aluminum. Because <laughs> because that was Trump. That's not Congress. Yeah, and, yeah. and you just don't know. Yeah, I'm sorry I'm laughing. I, I mean, that would make absolutely logical sense. If you can remember back in, in April and May, he put tariffs on all the rest of the world, but not Canada and Mexico. Why? Because we're negotiating NAFTA. When we failed to get the deal by June 1st, he said, well, well, okay, now you're going to get tariffs because I don't have a deal with you. But if you get a deal, you know, good things can happen. So if we sign the deal tomorrow, I would like to believe that maybe not the very next day, but within a week or two, the, ter the tariffs would be lifted on steel and aluminum. Note, by the way, we're using this word tariff. He's also said if Canada can't find its way to making a deal, I'm going to impose tariffs on the auto sector. And again, he's very vague here. I don't know if it's just on finished automobiles, if it's on automotive parts, if it's every time it crosses the border, there'd be a 20, 25 percent tariff devastating to the Ontario economy. It'd be devastating to the Ontario economy, but it would also be devastating to the American economy. The big three domestic automobile producers, Ford, GM, Chrysler, testified in front of Congress. They do not want this. 40% of their sales come from product they import from other places. It would hurt them as much as anybody else. Please, Mr. Trump, do not do this. You are not helping your domestic industry. But Donald Trump is Donald Trump. And I, you know, every minute is a is a roller coaster ride. I don't know which way we're going next. Would that we could. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming in today. Glad to be here, Bill. Marvin Ryder at the uh, Degrude School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.